0: All right, we are going to jump around yet again today, so if you have your Bible, we can go to Philippians chapter 2 because that's where we're going to start this morning. And uh, let me just ask you, I think this is going to be more people than not, but how many people like a plan? People like a plan, right? Yeah, we got a lot of planners out there. Make a plan, have a plan, maybe have a plan for this week, maybe have a plan for lunch or breakfast after this or something, maybe you have a plan for getting together with people, you have a plan. There is power in a plan. Some of you don't fully embrace the power of the plan because you don't carry the plan out, you like to make the plans, but keeping the plans, that's a whole different thing. But what I would say is the power of the plan is this, they generally make things more likely to happen if you make a plan. And I'll just give you an example of that. If you're having a conversation, I have these conversations all the time with people, and at the end of the conversation or somewhere in the conversation, somebody says to you, we should get together sometime. Right. The difference between that actually happening and not happening is a plan. If we walk away and there's no plan, I'm like, we're never seeing them again. <laughs> right? Because there's no plan. And then some, every now and then someone surprises by picking up the phone, hey, remember when we said we should get together? Plans help, and plans help in big things too. If your parenting feels chaotic, maybe you need a plan. If your friendships feel like they're drifting apart, perhaps you need a plan. If your marriage is running on empty, it's probably time to step back, look at what's needed, and make a plan. The same thing goes for your spiritual life. If you aren't alive in your soul, if passion is not burning inside of you for Jesus, if your, your whole kind of feel as a believer is wilted, you need a plan. And what we've been talking about and what we're going to talk about in Coming Alive is some of the elements where we miss what we need to include in our plan. Last week, we talked about the astounding reality that for believers, death is life. And I don't know that we celebrate that like, yay, death is life. I mean, we should. It's a miracle. It's resurrection power. We should be all kinds of excited about it. But it means death comes, loss comes, pain comes, and it's hard for us to walk through that. We base that in the fact that because Jesus rose, we also will rise from death. And because of that fundamental truth of Christianity, no loss for a believer, is ever the end of the story. Isn't that awesome? No matter what you lose, no matter what you suffer, it is never the end of the story for a believer. That brings hope to us. And what it teaches us is that in the hardest places of our life, the ones we would run from if we could, In those places, God is actively bringing life to your soul if you will trust in Him in the middle of it. Not in spite of the hard stuff, but because of the hard stuff. And I've actually had some people this week share with me how God is doing that in their life right now. This week, bringing life from death. Now, that is a powerful truth, but remembering it, Living it, holding on to believing it, that's hard. Do I really want to be alive like God wants me to be? Yes. I feel the, the, the numbness or the dryness or the, the darkness. I feel it. I, I want to be alive, but I feel the, the way that I'm not. Do you really want to be alive even if it means that God takes you through death, through loss? Yeah. Well, how would I do that? We need a plan. What I'm going to try to do today is talk about a plan for living in the loss. The thing that gets in the way of our living alive through death, believing in the resurrection power, is that we humanly have an instinct to hold on to things we like and push away things that we don't like. Now, if that's not you then you can ignore the rest of this. But for anybody else who has the instinct inside of them that wants to gather the stuff you like and push away the stuff you don't, this is exactly our problem. This is our battle. And this is why we need a plan. Because when we have that battle and we drift into thinking that way, it spills over into thinking that more of what is comfortable and enjoyable and desirable is what will bring me alive. And avoiding what I don't like at all costs will bring me alive. That's a natural way of thinking. And what it does in our souls is it begins to put a mentality of me first. What about me? It causes us to live self-focused. And as believers, I hope you know this, and if you don't, hopefully by the end of this you will. When we live to serve ourselves, we die. That is an absolute When we live to serve ourselves, we die. But when we are eager and faithful in serving others, we live. Now that's hard to believe to our humanity, hard to hold on to. But the reality, and we've experienced it, is that self-centered thinking and self-centered choosing leads to death. It's hard to hold on to because at the beginning it seems to pay off. When I live all about me, then I get some things that I like and I'm full of joy and it's like, this is awesome. It offers the promise of like, this is going to take me somewhere great. But it turns out that God knew what he was talking about. That his instructions to us, his advice to us, his example to us are not just arbitrary rules to test our willingness to submit and obey. They're actually a guide at how life works works how relationships work and he gave them to us and he gave us consequences to try to help us avoid the consequences that come when we live against his instruction when we live for ourselves so what's the plan it's a plan that fights against the deadly lie that i need to live for me god somehow is teaching all of us that lesson That it's a deadly lie to live for yourself. Some of the ways that we talked about last week, the death, the loss, the grief, the struggle, the persecution, the insults, the hardship that come into your life that you didn't choose, God is bringing them or using them in your life to teach you. Living for yourself is death. But what if there were a way where we could choose to learn that lesson without God having to bring it to us? What if we could have a plan where we discipled our own souls into it? And that's what we're going to talk about today. A daily death. Dying every day and choosing to it. We can choose to embrace the work that God does when we sacrifice and set our concern on others. It's like two sides of the same thing. One is where God imposes it on us because we need Him to, and the other is where we choose to live in it and walk it out. We embrace what God does through loss, and through pain. So here's my proposition for us today. Serving is life. Last time we talked about death is life. This time I'm saying to you, serving is life. It is a way a believer can and believers have chosen to reject Self-centered living, because we believe when we live to serve ourselves, we die. And we're not just making this up, Philippians 2. We're following an example. So if you have your Bible, Philippians 2 is where we are, and verse um, uh, verse 5 is where we're going to start. It says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus in your relationships with one another. And that's kind of what Paul just came off of talking about. He said, don't do anything through selfish ambition, concern yourself with the well-being of others. And so he says, now I'm going to give you the why. The why is we're following an example. So in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What mindset is he talking about? Verse six, who being in very nature God, Did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. He is God. He is God Himself, God incarnate in human flesh, and He said, "I am going to not use that to my own advantage. I am not going to serve myself. I am not going to measure the benefit or the good to me." This is the example we're following. Verse 8 or verse 7 Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He chose this. He volunteered for this. He went into this when he didn't have to. Life and situations and circumstances did not force Jesus to come and serve, he chose to. And Paul says we should follow his example in our relationships with one another. So this isn't just, I'm not going to serve myself theoretically. This is practically. In our relationships with one another, we should have the same mindset as Jesus who took on, chose the nature of a servant. He came to serve. I would say this is where we choose to die regularly. By choosing to serve others. Jesus called us to the same mindset in Matthew chapter 23, verses 11 and 12. It says this, The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus teaches the disciples, if you want to be great, do this thing that makes you great. What do you think it is? Fill in the blank, disciples. What do you think it is that makes you great? Oh man, I can't imagine what makes me great. Oh, I can't wait to hear what Jesus has to say about what makes me great. Serve. Okay, what's number two? What's next? Yeah, serve. If you want to be great, the greatest among you will be your servant. Because serving Exercises are love. And people, can I be honest, we need the exercise. We're not that good at it. We wanna, we're want to. good at talking love. We're good at giving ourselves credit for loving people. But if we want to be active in loving people, we've got to choose to serve. That's the plan. We've got to choose to serve other people people. We are not naturally good at living selflessly. We constantly fight this gravity of this pull back to self-interest. And so serving is how we go to war against this tendency that wrecks our soul. If we live to serve ourselves, we die. Well, I don't know if this is that deadly. I think I can just manage it. I can just balance it. Self-focused living causes untold damage, not only to your soul, but to your relationships. You think about the dysfunction in relationships because of self-focused interaction. Well, what about me? No, you need to hear me. Well, my opinion, my idea. I think we're seeing this play out, not just in our world, but in church. Everybody wants to be heard. Everybody wants to stick up for their rights. Everyone wants to make sure other people do what they think they should do. This is not serving. Newsflash. I'm not saying there isn't service to speaking your mind and, and, and helping people and sharing with people what you understand. But I'm telling you, you've got to recognize there's a gravity to this that pulls it back to me, me, me. And the only way we fight against that is to choose to regularly serve. Not hypothetically, not theoretically, but practically. Serving one another in love. We need the exercise. So what's the plan? Here's the plan. Where are you regularly choosing to serve? Where in your life is it scheduled and patterned and planned? I am going to serve other people. I'm going to get myself in discipline out of the center of my life and I'm going to serve someone else. For some of you, part of that might be in things that are yours like parenting Parenting should be selfless. Maybe your job is about serving other people and you should go in with the right attitude. And that's good, but it's also kind of like not chosen. Do you know what I mean? It's like just put on, it's yours because it's yours. You've got to do it. I mean, I guess you could just be selfish in your parenting, but really, does that make you look like a good parent? And do you want other people to see that? Of course not. So you, ha- you kind of have to serve. And there's good to that. But I think we need more than default serving. I believe we need to choose it and volunteer to serve. A change of mindset from thinking I am my first priority to letting the Lord show us where He wants to bring life to our soul through serving. So how would I see that? How would I know that? How would I do that? All right, well, let me give you an example of one place where we could start to pattern this into our lives. We're going to go to Luke chapter 10. And what I'd say is, ask yourself this morning, what advantages you have in this life? What advantages has God given you over someone else in your sphere of influence? Now, I'm not saying you don't have disadvantages. Of course, we all have disadvantages too. Maybe you think that your advantages have been given to you to balance things out in your life. Like, well, I got this bad stuff, so at least I have this, and it kind of makes it even. Or maybe you think your advantages are your chance to get ahead, to make something of yourself, to to step forward, to seize your ambition, to make people notice you, to feel secure in your worth, to stop you. Eventually, if you have enough of advantage, you can stop comparing yourself with other people. Your advantages have not been given to you for any of those purposes. Jesus tells a very famous story in response to this interaction we're going to look at in Luke chapter 10. So in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus is going to have a conversation. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So you notice who's coming here. It is an expert in the law. And he comes to test Jesus. So he has advantage in his life. What is his advantage? He is an expert in the law. And what does he want to use his advantage for? What must I do so that I can inherit eternal life? Who's this about? Me. I'm going to use my, and I'm going to test Jesus and try to catch him in something so that I look good and he looks bad. This is what humanity does, right? So this is, this is kind of like the beginning of the story. So Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, that is the expert, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the expert answers Jesus with Jesus' words that have been said, I'm sure, many times throughout Jesus' ministry. What are the greatest commands? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, do this and you will live. Does that mean if I love people hard enough and I love God hard enough, that's my salvation? No, it doesn't mean that. It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is looking at this man, and he knows he's not coming from trust and faith. He knows he's trying to trust in his advantage he's trying to push himself forward. And so Jesus says, "Now take that advantage and use it for others. Love your neighbor as yourself." If the man if that could get through to this expert in the law, then he's going to his eyes are going to be opened. And he's going to be able to step forward into faith. Using what is your advantage for others is one way to look at volunteer service, but that's not what this guy wanted to do. So this guy continues the conversation by saying, but the man wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, the person who brought it up is the expert. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, yes, you're right. And he goes, now, exactly who do I have to serve? Who is my neighbor? And the response to that is Jesus telling the story of the Good Samaritan. I'll give you a lesson on what I'm saying when I say be your neighbor. What does it mean to love your neighbor? It means use your advantage to those who are in trouble, those who are struggling, those who are without advantage. Those who didn't, that guy who set out in the story of the Good Samaritan didn't think he was going to need help that day. Turned out he did. Use your advantage for that person. Use your advantage for those who others overlook and others ignore. Use your advantage for those who may not even like you. Some of the point of the guy being a Samaritan who's the hero of the story is that the guy laying on the side of the road before this day probably didn't even like the guy who was rescuing him. And the neighborly mindset of the Samaritan was, I don't care that you don't like me. I'm going to help you in your time of need anyway. We could do with a good dose of this, people. Serve people that you wish would do something different than they're doing. Serve people who are trying to make you do something you don't want to do. This is how we exercise our hearts into the love that we're supposed to hold in our souls. We come to church and we're like, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself and amen and that's great and here's some money for the benevolent fund. But then we go out and we justify acting negatively, bitterly, at war with people when we're called to love them. There's life in serving. But it requires us to believe by faith that what Jesus exampled to us and what Jesus teaches us is right. What Jesus is trying to show from the the expert in the law is given more explicitly by Paul in Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13 verses 8 to 10, here's what Paul writes. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and what other other commands there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul says, it is not enough to have warm feelings about other people or to tell yourself that you love them. You have got to act it out in certain ways. You've got to act it out like your compassion and your kindness is toward them. It is hard to steal from someone in love. Right? It is hard to betray someone in love. It is hard to be jealous of someone in love. It's hard to gossip about someone in love. We try to. Oh, I'm just so concerned about them. I really want to talk about this, but I want to make it look Christian. So I just got it. Could you pray about this? I want to share a prayer request with. You. Like we try to make it loving, but is it? It is difficult for us to love and sin against our brother. Love drives us to serve one another. It is hard for us in love to be super picky with people and pick apart their words. It is hard for us to stay bitter in love. It is hard for us to be argumentative and try to win the fight in love. Do you see how love is corrective? But love has traction in real life choices. And I don't think we're good at that. I think we're good at taking that command of love and saying, yeah, we do that, but not now. And you know how you get good at it? Practice it. And you know how you practice it? You schedule serving other people as a regular part of your life. You keep training your mind and your soul to be giving and loving and serving. Love drives us to serve one another, to choose it, to plan it. And when we love, Paul says we fulfill the law. And I would say by extension that when we serve, we live. So whatever advantage you have... In relation to other people, if you're a boss, if you're an upperclassman in school, if you have resources, if you're an American, if you're a Christian, if whatever advantages you have, you've been given those advantages not to balance out your life or to try to make you have joy or whatever. You've been given those advantages to train your soul to serve other people in love. Now that's a different mindset, isn't it? And That's where we find life. I'm going to go back one chapter to Romans chapter 12. Perhaps I can't think of any advantages. I don't know. My life is just a mess. I don't know that I have advantages over everyone. That doesn't mean you're just out of this and you can't do this. Paul writes these words in Romans 12, verse 1. says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? I'm going to give you what I think it means. Serve one another in love. You are, I want to be a living sacrifice to the Lord. Yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You want to be you want to live out Romans 12:1, be a living sacrifice in view of God's mercy, choose to serve others. If death for a Christian is just deliverance, just a doorway like we sing, death is just a doorway, we should believe that and it should come to reality in our lives so thoroughly that we choose to be living sacrifices. If death is a pathway to life, then sacrifice and serving is a path to life. We offer ourselves to die every day. So I would suggest to you that it is by serving, by choosing to make it a part of our schedule and our plan, to prioritize it and to recognize my soul's need for the practice it gives. So where would I say you could do that on a regular, planned, scheduled basis? Surprise, church! We got all kinds of teams and it's not because we need to get stuff done. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you, it's a lot easier to get stuff done if I don't have to manage volunteers, right? So why are we so passionate about teams all the time and about rotations and about in and out? It's not because we're trying to make it convenient for you. It's because we know that serving is life and you and I need the practice of it. We all do. So if you've been sitting around not doing anything, guess what? There is not the life that God wants to give you in your soul if you have disconnected yourself from serving your brothers and sisters here at church on some planned and practical and regular time. We should value serving So what do we do? We serve one another. We clean things. We bring meals. We fix things. We teach children. We give money. We give away what self-focus would want us to keep so that we exercise our souls into the love we need to have for life. And we do it with joy and eagerness. We don't do it with the, it's my turn to serve. And we don't do it, we do it with expectation, not the, well, I guess that didn't make any difference. We do it by faith, knowing that when we serve, it doesn't matter if it affects anyone else, because it affects me. It sets us free from what would choke the life out of us. We do it faithfully, we do it reliably, we do it as a priority. I know it's very common for people to be like, well, it's just church and I can't do it and whatever, and that's what's got to drop off my schedule. Serving's got to drop off, I've got a busy life, and that's what's got to drop off my schedule. And I get it, because you feel like there are consequences and other things, but I'm telling you right now as your pastor, there's consequences to setting aside serving. To not having this practically as a normal, regular part of your life, there are consequences to it. And many of us are living in them. If you don't serve, I can tell you what happens. You fall back into serving yourself because you're going to serve somebody. (laughs) You don't get to choose if you're going to serve. You get to choose who you will serve. You're going to serve somebody. And the natural drift for all of us is to serving ourselves. Joshua, at the end of his life, called to the children of Israel and, and made this statement that many of us have in our homes Joshua chapter 24, verses 15, 14 and 15. Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness, He says. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. You, you don't get to choose if you will serve. You get to choose who you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. How do we serve the Lord? The New Testament coupling from Jesus to Paul to James to the expert in the law that we read today is that loving the Lord, serving the Lord is coupled with loving your neighbor, serving your neighbor. The story that Jesus told is meant to show us that serving is how we choose to love. The good Samaritan didn't just come by and look at the the guy who's laying on the side of the road and go, I love you. The point of the story is he helped him, right? We choose to love. But I'm saying to you, there are times where it's unexpected and spontaneous and just shows up. But if that's your strategy, that's not a plan. I'll just do it whenever it shows up. If that's your strategy, you won't even be looking. You won't be ready for, if you don't include scheduled serving, you won't be ready to serve on a minute's notice. We have to discipline our hearts into serving. So make it a priority part of your life. Find a place to serve here. In a few weeks, we'll have another form that we can, you can volunteer for stuff. You don't need to wait for that. You can do it today. You can come see any of our elders or our deacons or our staff. You can drop us a note and tell us what kind of stuff you have in your heart that God is talking to you about doing. And we're going to find a plan that fits you. And that plan will help you serve in a way that brings life to your soul. This whole series is about Jesus is life and God's people live. Are we alive and if not, we're talking about what do we do? Maybe the reason we live so dead is because we see life, this life we're doing, this life we're wanting as something we catch if we run fast enough or work hard enough. Or maybe we see life as something that comes when we go back to this default thinking of I keep what I want and I get rid of what I don't want. Giving away what I want is lost and not what I want to do. And so when God takes something away, we mourn and we grieve and we complain and we push against the unfairness of it and the feeling that God doesn't care. Why? Because we haven't come to believe that death is life. We haven't come to believe that serving is life. But what if what we need to do is choose to lose? Choose to give ourselves to others. What if there's life there? What if Jesus' example wasn't just for Him, but what if it was for us to follow Him? And we sang this morning that we would follow Him anywhere. Wherever it leads, whatever it costs. Are those just words? Or is that an invitation to life for God's people? I pray that we will follow Him down this road and find the life that he wants to bring to our souls. Let's close this morning with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. We have sung about it this morning to be convinced how you love us. I pray that you would help us to respond to your love, to follow in your footsteps, to trust you and walk by faith. I know, God, you have teaching do in our souls because this isn't natural this isn't normal this is hard to process and many of us are overwhelmed with life the enemy has us exactly where he wants us we've got no room for any of the stuff that's healthy for our soul so he's convinced us that we just have to live dead in our soul even though Jesus is alive and God brings dead things to life God brings life to his people so, Father, I pray today your move in our souls would be powerful, that it would awaken us, that it would bring life to us as we surrender and as we choose to give ourselves away. May you show us where, may you show us how, may you lead us down this path, each and every one of us to exactly what you have for us and help us to trust you as we respond so that we'll be following exactly where you want to take us. We put these things in your hand. We trust you to do it because we know you're good. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.